All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. On behalf of all of us behind the scenes here at Forspace, welcome in person or via Zoom to this morning's panel discussion, Anishinaabe Inakana Gwyn. We are coming to you live from Concordia University's Forspace, located on unceded Indigenous lands in Jajage, Montreal. As caretakers for the lands and waters we are meeting on, we are grateful to the Ganagahaga nations for their teachings about the earth and our relations. At Forspace, we work to connect people to the initiatives, research projects, and dialogues happening across the university. So we are pleased to have the opportunity to collaborate with Emilio Wawati and the Indigenous Stream of the Youth Network on this event. We are running this as a meeting, so we welcome your comments via the chat or with a raised hand. It's now my pleasure to pass it over to you, Alicia. Welcome. Yeah, well, thank you. Alicia uh, So hi, everyone, and welcome. My name is Alicia. I'm a research assistant at the Youth Network Chair at the Indigenous Stream. Um, and I'm just here quickly to just talk about the Stream, which is a research platform bringing together Indigenous youth, um, researchers, and Indigenous collaborators of organizations together to collaborate on innovative projects um, working towards empowering youth. Um, and working towards decolonizing research. And so through these practices, we have amazing projects like this one that we have with Emilio today, um, putting together a panel to talk on governance. And so um, I'm just so pleased to have Emilio today. Um, and I will just pass on the mic to you and yeah. Very much, Lisa. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm good. I uh, just wanna see, I see Ryder, is that Savannah? Yeah, okay. Oh, Natasha too. <laughs> okay, so quick now we, my name is Emilio Wawale and I'm a student researcher and musician attending Concordia University, studying as a double major in music and first people studies. So throughout the summer, I conducted research into the topic of indigenous governance and the implications that youth have had within the modern frameworks of indigenous governance. <clears throat> To conclude my work for the summer, I've invited a few Algonquin and Anishinaabe youth into a virtual circle in which we will discuss various aspects of Indigenous governance and what governance and politics means to them as Indigenous youth. Similar topics have come up in regards to Indigenous governments from Indigenous youth across Turtle Island. These topics range from ceremony, culture, citizenship, environmental sustainability, sustainability and language. Ooh, I need some water. Many Indigenous youth walk with one foot in the Western world and another foot in the Indigenous realm, all with concerns for the next seven generations. Growing up, we always hear about the concerns for, for youth from leadership, yet action is rarely ever seen and our voices are solemnly heard. Today, there's a resurgence amongst Indigenous youth across Turtle Island to reclaim, revive and revitalize all aspects of their identity. Within the Anishinaabe worldview, our lives are governed by the law of nature and seasonal changes that have educated us and our ancestors for millennia upon millennia. Teachings passed down from Nanabush, Muskejak, and the seven prophets long ago, then passed on to and practiced by the Anishinaabe for a thousand generations. The development of Anishinaabe constitutional governance is not an idea to place humans above all living things, but rather to guide our lives to live in harmony in a good way. The interconnectedness of Anishinaabe and Naganegewin is rooted directly into the land. From this connection stem the importance of these principles that are intrinsically intertwined. Ceremony, vision, destiny, 
critical thought, peace and communication, free will, policies, responsibilities, education, ethics and laws, communal reciprocity and the environment. As humans and as Anishinaabe within the modern context, we encounter many obstacles in the process of walking in two worlds. Looking to strike balance in our lives as Anishinaabe, youth and younger generations are becoming more aware and attuned to two wide seeing and becoming more aware of the importance of balancing the worlds, the, the two worlds to live in a good life, to seek Minopamadziwan, guardianship, stewardship, teaching, leading, and healing. It's important that youth be guided and mentored by elders and community to maintain the principles and values of Anaganagewin, to ensure that there will be leaders of tomorrow. So for this panel discussion, I've invited several Anishinaabe youth to share their perspectives and experience within this whole context, coming from varied backgrounds, ranging from formerly within band councils and community politics, and through environmental and cultural and social activism. So I'll take this time now to have uh, my panelists introduce themselves, however um, you want to go. The floor is yours. Wait, I think uh, you're muted. Savannah McGregor and Donjaba. Um, my name is Savannah McGregor. I'm from Kitaganzi Anishinaabe, and I am the acting grand chief of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation Tribal Council. I I'm just sliding out of the youth portion of my life, my, my walking life, I guess. I'm becoming a woman <laughs> or just an adult. But um, um, it's been an interesting path to get here um, and it was very very unexpected and very sudden and but it's also been very amazing and I, I my background in education is um, indigenous studies and political science and French and um, I always wondered why my mother kept me in like a francophone school even though I'm an Anishinaabe Kway and, um, and now I know and I'm grateful for that so that I can communicate effectively and, and understand the way the Quebec system and the provincial government works and doesn't work for us as Anishinaabe people on our own territories, which they do not recognize and claim as their own. So, um, yeah, I'll just, I'll leave it at that for now. And I look forward to engaging with each and every one of you and, uh, Glad that we're all on this path together. Miigwech. Miigwech. Or Leona or Ryder, either. Okay, I guess I'll go. I quick and I wait. Mukuni keeps in the watch now. There's no cousin and what more than them. Mukundu them. Taganzi big should just take on a view this year. What more than them. Kundu them. Munyak Nujba. Um, McGill University in the Kanamagas, Kajikska, Kanamagyan, Menabijak Kanawik, Chaguanachuma Abiek Kanuma. Bonjour tout le monde, je m'appelle Mukunikip Zenwach Nadwe, mon nom anglais et rider côté Natawe. Je suis Anishinaabe, du clan des ours de Lac Rapide et Kitskadzibi. Je suis le petit loup blanc. 
j'habite à Montréal pour mes études. J'étudie à McGill University pour, euh, pour être professeur. Euh, C'est très bien d'être ici avec vous autres ici. Euh, merci d'être venu et de nous écouter. Uh, C'était un grand honneur. Kwe, uh, hello everyone. My name is Mukuni Kipsinwach Nadwe. My English name is Ryder Cody Nadwe. I'm a, <coughs> I'm a North American Indian of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation of Kitigan Zibi and Rapid Lake. I'm the little white wolf of the Bear Clan. I'm a third generation residential school survivor. Uh, currently living in Montreal to study at McGill University to be a gym teacher. Uh, it's a great honor to be here with you all, and uh, I'm happy that you're here listening, and I look forward to the discussion. Miigwech. Miigwech. Leona. Leona, do you want to go? Yeah. Okay. Quick way. My name is Leona Commando Nadishnikaz, Pikwakanagan Nadojabem Makwa Nadoda. So my name is Mackenzie Leona Commando. I am from Pikwakanagan, Ontario, and I am a mother to a happy two and a half year old, and I also work as a PSW. Um, and I am also a political advocate uh, as a community member um, in resistance to the modern treaty negotiations of, with the AOO and the Canadian governments um, as their effects on our community has been drastic and um, detrimental to us, which. Miigwech. I really appreciate that you are able to come join us today. And so for today, the discussion, it's, it's a little hard to kind of like divide all these aspects in terms of governance because, you know, there's so much interconnectedness in terms of our culture and how we relate everything in terms of spirituality to the natural world. So I'd like to start it off just as an icebreaker um, with this statement. Uh, Life as an indigenous person is highly politicized, whether we like it or not. Our paths at times inevitably lead us to mobilization for the land, water, culture, and our rights in general. Through community engagement, education through stories around a fire, lined up ready to stand off at a blockade or marching to Parliament Hill, indigenous youth everywhere are leading the way. As we work to carry the fire from one generation to the next, Anishinaabe youth are pushing the way forward and blazing new trails to help lead the way for others. But the reality for youth in many communities is they often go unheard or underrepresented within community governance. So my question, my first question is, as youth, um, what has been your experience within the realm of Anishinaabe politics and social and environmental activism? Maybe we could just continue with the same circle, Savannah, Ryder, and then Leona. Thank you for that question. Um, for myself, like growing up, just I, I grew up in Kelowna, BC, and I was the only Algonquin Anishinaabe person in 
kind of like um, a very, very white town. And I, and I always like wondered like, okay, well, I know what, where I'm from and where my family is, but I'm so far away. And I got to learn a lot about the Salix culture and the, well, the interior Salish and, and really appreciated having, well, the opportunity to still live on a reserve and just go across the bridge to go to school with um, the settler population on those lands. So um, what brought me there was um, West Bank's self-government agreement. My mother got an opportunity to work there as their senior researcher. So then I got to see, while growing up, she worked there for 13 years until their self-government agreement reached royal assent. And uh, I got to see a community take control of all of their jurisdictions, even their water rights, and and like and really step away from the Indian Act and on their own terms through community engagement sessions, a, a lot of them and and a lot of families kind of parallel to our communities. Um, each family has their own ways of knowing and their ways of being because that's just how things like that work in terms of governance and decision-making. So then they really work together to reach that objective. So growing up as an Algonquin person in Selix territory was eye-opening because I there's lots of parallels between British Columbia and Quebec in regards to um, how their lands are unseated and there's very few or little treaties and it opens up the world to the fight and the struggle that we have in regards to the reclamation of our lands because we never ceded them. Um, they're unsurrendered, but the provincial governments lay claim to it. So then that was like my big first experience in regards to um, governance and um in regards to like protesting and stuff like that, uh, my first protest that I went to, I was a child and my mother was working at the Assembly of First Nations at the time, and we were protesting the Meech Lake Accord. And I'll never forget that energy and the power and, and the fight and the struggle that, that the people or, who organized themselves to fight this um, did and I guess being born Indigenous, you're born into politics, as you mentioned earlier, Emilio, and um, and just trying to figure that out, like within oneself, and trying to figure out what direction one wants to go in regards to claiming their identity and and being proud of who you are as an individual, and trying to just be your best, so then you can do good and be of service to your nation and your people and, and in a bigger context, the indigenous world, because we're all in this together. And it's, it really amazes me, but not in a way that is like amazing how we are still fighting the same struggles that our ancestors have fought and it's continual. And that indigenous question, I, my first course in indigenous studies at university of British Columbia, Okanagan, I was like, uh, 
my professor, um, Tirso Gonzalez, mentioned the indigenous question. And then I right away wanted to know, well, what's the answer? Like, what's the answer to the indigenous question? And when I am done this, like, will I find the answer? And I guess it's different for everyone, of course, because that's how we work as collectives. We all add little pieces to the big circle that is our identities that we carry forward through our bloodlines. Um, so I've got to just keep fighting and never give up and never lose hope and always have faith so we can continue bringing the vision and our culture and, and a reclamation of that forward onto so we can share that with our future generations. Um, it's so important that we never lose sight of that and thus. <laughs> um, being in an Atakanon and, and seeing the files that the tribal council is working on as they are mandated by the seven chiefs that my tribal council um, represents has been really interesting and eye-opening. Um, like right now we're working on a moose file and and in conjunction with our peoples and it's such a heavy heavy file because the moose can't speak for themselves and how do we protect our resources or our resource that has sustained us as peoples and and represents so much to us represents just survival and and using all of the animal like making tanning hides and just sorry I'm just I'm a little um I went out <laughs> into the rabbit hole but um and just seeing how the provincial government just sees it as something that will renew itself no matter how they manage it and we're trying to get to a point where we can we can get our people out on the land to be like game wardens but then within the Anishinaabe context and also reach co-management of one section to see if that could be applicable elsewhere um it's really tough the negotiators on the other side of course will well they're from the other side right and just trying to open up their eyes to our worldview and our cosmologies and how things are and how they should be within our land is it's a big feat so um, I'll, I'll just leave it off at that for now and and I know Ryder is a warrior and is there I just I really admire watching the youth because they remind me that the work of our ancestors has followed through and we haven't lost those teachings and we are keeping our voices strong and uniting and, and trying to do the best that we can with what we've got in this Western world. Uh, <clears throat> for those words. Uh, Milo, do you mind repeating the question for me, please? Yeah, no problem. Rich. 
Yeah, so the, after the statement, the, the, the question itself for this, uh, this first one is, as youth, what has been your experience within the realm of Anishinaabe politics, social and environmental activism? Uh, so growing up, I was really close to my family. I'm really grateful for that, especially my grandparents. And they always taught me, uh, my grandparents, three of them are residential school survivors and the last one being an Indian day school survivor. And they, they always taught me growing up, speak for those who can't speak and stand for those who can't stand. So that's always been what I've heard growing up. And, you know, I'd always go to these events growing up. Uh, I started as young as 10 years old, listening to my grandparents and my great aunts and uncles, their stories from residential schools, uh, you know, during doing the journey of Nishu, um, doing all these marches. And growing up, I never realized that it was politics. For me, it was just being Anishinaabe. That's what it was. That's just who we had to be, you know, uh, the, all these burdens and all these hardships we have to carry and go through. Even as a kid, you don't understand, but it's just, this is who we are. This is what we have to do. And um, now that I'm getting older, I am understanding a lot more and more about actual politics and what, what, it, can, what it can be. And, um, and one piece of advice my cookum gave me was, as a youth, your biggest strong point is your ability to listen. So now I, I, and I hold that close to me because now I'll go to the band meetings and I, I do what I can do, or I'll go to these marches to listen to other Anishinaabe people speak and, um, and just listen to hear what they have to say, because they have that lived experience, it, lived experience, you know, they've walked down this road before that we haven't walked down. And, um, so for me, my involvement is, you know, just trying to do as much as I can by listening, taking all of the everything in. But like you said, it's hard to be involved because we have to have one foot in the Western and one foot in the traditional, right? It's like uh, for what we want to do, you know, whether it be studying our work, we have to sacrifice that part of ourselves. And no one else in Canada has to make that sacrifice. It's only us as Indigenous people. We have to make that sacrifice. And, you know, I always, I often say that, when I'm in school, I don't feel like I'm in Anishinaabe. I feel like I have to put that side of me aside because I have to focus on my studies. And um, so, yeah, so uh, sorry. It's like uh, everything is, like you said, everything's so intertwined. It, it, everything connects. But yeah, uh, politics, it's, it's, it's something. It's, it's, it is something. It's a lot of work. It's not, it's not easy work, but it, it's work that needs to be done. And um but there is a shift in the, uh, there is a change, you know, growing up, I, I, I never really had any hope for the future. It was always scary, you know, even young, like having that sense of not having hope for the future was like, uh, was, it's odd, right. For a child to feel that. But the more I grew up, especially when I got to CJEP, uh, I did my CJEP here in Montreal as well. And, um, I started, you know, meeting other people and talking to other people and again, just listening to their stories and, that's when I had a switch and it was like, okay, maybe I do have hope with this next generation uh, because there's such a big switch in mentality where people are like, Hey, well, this is wrong. What's happening here ain't right. And people are finally starting to wake up, you know, spirits are awake, uh, have been awoken. And so like Savannah said, we're all coming together because we're all one people, right? Regardless of the color of our skin or where we come from, we're all from mother earth. We all live under the same sun. So it's important that we all come back to 
together like this. And, you know, if we want to speak about true traditional Anishinaabe politics, one of ours was the wampum belts and uh, our, our methods uh, is the wampum belt. And one wampum belt, my grandpa tells a story, is the one dish, one spoon wampum. And uh, what this, uh, the dish represents was the land, the environment and everything that it has to offer. And the spoon represents sharing because we always shared amongst each other, whether it be community. I've heard stories of different nations sharing amongst each other. You know, I've heard of stories where Ganyukahaga, if they had a bad crop season, then Anishinaabe people bring them in their territory, come and hunt in our territory. If we had a bad hunt, then Ganyukahaga would be like, we'll come into our territory, hunt, and here, here's, here's some of our crop. So we always shared no matter what. And, uh, but when uh, settlers first arrived here, that spoon was taken out and a knife was put in. And that knife represents capitalism. And every now you see in our day, everything's divided and everything's about money. It's about who can make the most money and, you know, who can be on top, right? Politics is just about the art of getting stuff done. But as the new generation rising, our generation, you know, I, I felt like my, my, my grandpa said it himself. He says, the knife is slowly being removed and the spoon is slowly being put back in. And, uh, so yeah, so that that for me that that's what politics is. It's just it's really just traditional knowledge. That's that's for me the way I see Anishinaabe politics. It's just knowledge that comes from the land. Miigwech. Miigwech. Um So. For my life growing up, it was rather tragic, heartbreaking. I endured a lot um, of trauma growing up. And I believe a lot of what I went through and my parents and my grandparents is due to the genocidal policies within the Indian Act. And so, like, ever since I was young, I knew that I was Anishinaabe. Um, we do have a handful of uh, knowledge keepers and teachers that did support the younger generations growing up. And I, for that, I'm very grateful. But um, my parents, they were practicing Catholics and so were their parents. So my grandparents, three of them, they all attended um, Indian day school and then like their parents were residential school survivors. So um, my one grandma, uh, she's actually from Wakwemkum. And um, she, she's not much of a practicing Catholic, but her my grandpa was. And so they imposed a lot of those beliefs on me. And so I found it was very strange growing up with two different sets of beliefs. And I didn't know what to really believe in, but I more resented the Catholic uh, you know, religion. And because of that, I had suffered abuse from the teachers in my school. And despite my pleas to ask to leave, my parents, they just out of respect for my grandparents, because they wanted that for me, they wanted me to learn the Catholic religion and such. So back when I was a kid, um, that's when the issues with the 
<clears throat> land claim negotiations process, which Canada governments call a modern treaty process, um, really started to kick off as the lawyers that we seek to um, help us negotiate created um, a corporate body called the Algonquins of Ontario. And the condition of our reserve right now is very poor. Um, a lot of us, we don't have clean drinking water. And a lot of that is due to the bacteria in the soil. Like most of it is swamplands here in Pickwakanagon. And if you don't have bacteria in your water, you have uranium. And I remember that, you know, growing up, my parents, they were also um, poor, uh, lived in poverty, but they did the best they could with me. Um, so I can remember even my brown, my water was brown um, at times. So now we're finally working on having a water treatment plant for us. That's in the works for another few years, but our water still remains undrinkable. So growing up with all these issues, um, I got to watch this corporation gain power, wealth over us. And they're doing a lot of these things for what they call non-status in this corporation. And so the process that uh, begun in the early 2000s, so when I was just a little girl, it was very flawed and backwards. And that's when they did a lot of the enrollment process for this corporation. And um, the beneficiary criteria for this corporation, um, they can, if people can claim or prove with genealogy uh, that they are descended from a list of ancestors, this can even go back to the 16th century, they can gain membership with them. And it doesn't grant them Indian status, though. It grants them the right to hunt in our territory and vote on referendums uh, across like the Algonquin Nation here in Ontario. So when I became a teenager, um, a lot of these issues were trying to, uh, you know, be brought to the surface because what Canada and the, um, what the Canadian governments are trying to do is, you know, push us into a process that has extinguishment in mind. Um, so. I have looked into the different land claim negotiation processes uh, across Canada that have occurred so far, and a lot of them are similar, but I find this one just very particular in extinguishing our rights um, as Anishinaabeg people and relinquishing our territory. And so they, they came out within a agreement or the agreement in principle and they tell us it's a not as uh, a non-binding legal document um, that you know it could be negotiated on and changed however we're still bound to the terms within it and for some reason the proposed beneficiaries were able to vote on it and they have such an upper hand over us because they outnumber us by the thousands um, However, our community stuck to no. <laughs> we voted no on that. And 
so that's when I became very involved in the politics of it all because just looking around me and seeing all the heartbreak in my own community and just seeing the effects and consequences of this corporation, it's, it's, it's terrible and we have to do something about it. But in a sense, there's also a lot of powerlessness that us community members have, no matter how much we try to direct our leadership to say no, to walk away even, they just won't. And, um, but also during that time of the AIP signing, um, a lot of the youth are not involved, even myself. I had a lot of my own stuff going on. Um, but there was a group of matriarchs in the community that did take legal action against leadership at the time. That's still all in the works. We don't really know exactly how that is progressing at this very moment. And as of right now, we have done protests within our own community and petitions sent to the chief and council. But we're still trying to discuss other avenues of what we can do next um, to make it more powerful because out of the whole Algonquin territory, we're only promised 1.3% of crown land back and some of this land is inaccessible, you know, no use to us, um, just these random little parcels of land. However, that's not what the original intention was uh, of former Chief Greg Sarson's um, petition to the Canadian governments. Uh, and all this time, Algonquins have sent petitions to the government to you know, share this territory, have an actual agreement, but we were ignored. The British have always ignored our um, petitions as they knew that they wanted our territory to be the heart of Canadian government. And this also, the first paragraph of this agreement excludes any other Algonquins of other communities within Quebec. And that is also a huge issue because there's so many ties to each community with ours and relations. And it's just not fair as, you know, the provincial border is colonial and we don't recognize that as people. And so in my community, um, in the last couple of decades, we have lost a lot of culture, language, traditions. <laughs> you don't really find any of that uh, around. So growing up, I didn't really, um, I didn't really obtain that knowledge, even from my uh, grandparents, because they didn't want to speak about it, or they didn't want it. Like in my grandma's words, she says, it has no use in today's world. And she copes with her traumas by drinking, even still to this day. And so for myself, I am on like a journey of, you know, I want to be involved in the activism and the politics, but then also I'm trying to learn as much knowledge as I can so I can pass it on to my son and future generations. Because I believe that's how we're going to get through this. You know, we have to reclaim what is ours um, as people. 
while we're still fighting for our rights to this territory. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's just to kind of give it a, you know, a short story of it, but I could go on about this for hours, which. I mean, that's, oh, that's perfect. I mean, you know, just, just as an introduction, this really kind of helps set the tone of how things really kind of are. We're all coming from varied uh, experiences. Um, of course, for myself, um, you know, I'm just kind of shying out of my youth now. And I too am a, uh, my family um, went to residential school. Um, I'm, the writer's actually my cousin, you know, we're both Bawadis and his grandfather is my grandfather's nephew. And um, my chum, my chum taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about um, old chiefs. He taught me about prophecies. Uh, he taught me about the history. And until I went to school, um, I spent most of my summers and winters with him. Um, when he wasn't working in the summer, we'd be, tra we'd be traveling around the bush and he'd be teaching me stuff. And then I'd spend winters with him and go trapping. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you don't realize these things, but like it kind of develops your capacity at a young age. And that's the important thing. Like, you know, we talk about the medicine wheel and like how there's this relationship between the generations as the generations shift where, you know, with parents and the infants, how there's this educational system that's put there, especially when the children are, are in their tikkanagan, they'd be placed up against a tree and watch the community work. And then they learn how to work and learn how to do things and then eventually learn how to integrate themselves in a good way. And then as we get older into our, you know, our, our, our rebellious age into our teenagers, we become closer and more guided by our elders. And so I think that, uh, I think that it's, a, it's important that uh, we always remember as a, as a family, as a community and as a nation that, each of us, uh, each member of a nation um, comes with their set of skills. Like we as individuals don't have to be the jack of all trades and a master of none. I mean, you can be, but you don't have to put all that weight onto yourself, right? And I've experienced it myself where, of course, we're trying to maintain, you know, the momentum of our, of, of, of standing up for what's right for the culture, the land and everything. But then we're trying to, you know, make our life, you know, achieve our education. And then, you know, in this capitalistic world, we want to get like a stabilized job and stabilized income. But yet we, we also want to maintain our identities and our language and our culture. And so there's really always this double-edged blade that we're kind of like playing with because if we squeeze too hard, we cut ourselves. But then we're just like kind of wheeling it lightly. We can manage but then squeeze just enough and then we kind of burn out. And so um, for my second question, it ties into, um, it ties into the idea of politics and the, the, the conceptions between the Western and the traditional um, conceptualizations. And so through a Western lens, governance and politics tends to be a concept disconnected from nature in contrast to the interconnectedness with the natural world that many indigenous concepts of governance share. And so as, as youth, uh, do you think it's still important for modern Anishinaabe leadership to be guided by culture and the principles of Anakinigewin to ensure a sustainable future for our people? So 
Savannah, if you want to take the floor. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, Without our roots firmly planted in the ground and in the earth, like we're weak and and it's not who we truly are. Um, So like I myself am always trying to learn as much as I can about my culture and 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 it's it, it's tough um as you've shared to try and like learn the language and not just have little pieces of it and actually understand where it comes from because it comes from our land and it's a part of our spirit and our ancestors um so holding true to that and bringing that forward because the western world it is so different from ours and um i guess in tying into that um like with the algonquins of ontario they're they're not us and i've written to um mayor watson and i've spoken with minister miller on this and the algonquin i just want to share this with you leona um the algonquins of quebec do not um acknowledge the aoo and we're like it's really detrimental what the federal government has done by giving them that recognition and and how do we get them to undo that because i feel like for them it would be like opening up a can of worms for other decisions that they've made across the country on behalf of first nations peoples or just to try to seem as if they are in oh shoot what's that million dollar word <laughs> um step reconcile with us you know um so that that is the i guess the wind behind our sail and the strength of who we are as people is sticking to our traditional values and bringing that forward otherwise we lose a piece of who we are and we have to keep all the pieces together to bring that forward for our future generations because we are part of that mathematical equation of human beings that brings forward our culture to our future generations and we can't lose sight of that and we can't forget it and it's hard work but it it fills your spirit when you do connect and however that is because it looks different for everybody and there's not one set path to that and I just want to make that clear because it's to the individual and and each individual adds to our collective. And it's just an interesting place to be for me right now and, and trying to be of service to my nation because I, I face this question every day, like when I wake up and I'm like, okay, wow, this is okay. It's still real life. Like, <laughs> I show up and I wake up and I show up to work and I just try to do my best to keep one foot in front of the other while I'm taking in all of this information from each um, angle um, and just try to hold true to who I am because that is my gift that I'm trying to do my best to, to my people. And so, yes. <laughs> You know, I actually wanted to mention because, um, you know, you said you lived in Kelowna and like the, the situation with West Bank First Nation, like with the, their, their, um, their move to self-determination. 
you know, um, I think that uh, there's something to be said and to be had for you to have and, and your mother to have been a part of this. You know, you've you've learned from this process and, you know, given the circumstances over here in unceded territory, you know, just like in our, our traditional knowledge, applying this, applying this within the context of our people, just like the situation with repatriation and how our community went to the West Coast and, you know, saw some of the protocols and how they adapted it from the cedar to the birch bark and how we were able to, you know, we, we're not stagnant, right? We're always adapting. We're always, you know, evolving, yet we're always maintaining our identities and our culture because that's what keeps the fire going and enables us to keep moving forward. I, 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 just, I had the opportunity to, to go that. to Haida Gwaii once yeah. and, um, <laughs> of course, the big cedar dugout canoes and it was, <laughs> I shared, um, well, I like I come from the land of birch bark canoes, and you didn't—you should have seen how they, like, how they just like kind of looked at me and kind of laughed because, well, of course their waters are oceans <laughs> as opposed to rivers, and um, but yeah, um, in regards to the self-government agreement, um, I feel like there's three communities in BC. I think um, maybe Tawasin. Oh shoot. I'm forgetting the other one, but it's on the island or the coast. It starts with an S and then West Bank First Nations. And they're actually recognized as a nation within a nation. And the federal government realized that they gave them too much power and too much jurisdiction, like full jurisdiction. So now that might hinder future negotiations in the future to not be as free and true to who they are. So that's worrisome, and I don't know how to change that, but it's not a one-person problem. It's a nation-level thing. It definitely is. It kind of uh, creates a little bit of a ripple effect. But, uh, yeah, um, um, uh, Ryder, would you like to continue? Um, Savannah. Um, yeah, so it's definitely, I find it's 100% we need to incorporate our traditional teachings and knowledge into our politics. And uh, uh, I feel like we've lost our way. We've steered a really a long way from that, away from that. And uh, I'm under a KZ band registry. So when I, I'm going to talk about the, the KZ bound council and it's, it's not, it's run like we're like Western, it's what it's run like a Western civilization. The everything that's just the way it works, it just it's very white. It's not Anishinaabe, you know, like the voting system, everything's closed, it's all by ballots, you know. But back then, the way it, back then traditionally it was okay, it's open, you you choose amongst community who's going to be the next chief, who's going to be the next, uh, whatever. Um, and it's so individual, individualistic. Everyone just thinks about themselves. It's all about like, okay, well, how am I going to make myself better? How like, am I going to make money? How am I going to secure this? As opposed to how we used to live is, okay, how is the community going to get better? How is the community going to get stronger? How is the community going to grow? But it's always, you know, me, me, me. And that's because, you know, the bank accounts are wards of the the, the the crown worse to the crown you know i go to these bank councils and i hear people bringing up ideas or issues and i i all i hear is well we can't because indian act says this well we can't because government says this 
well, who are you like, what's your purpose here? Are you trying to please the government or are you trying to please your pe- help your people? You know? So I feel like, you know, because of that band council and your hands are tied and we need to steer, steer away from that. And I really like what Ganawage does is they have their bound council, but it also, they also develop their traditional council. They have their own traditional councils with their clan mothers and their chiefs and they run traditionally and they have a big, big impact and, um, and involvement in their community. And, that's something that we need in uh, I, in our communities, you know, so we can self-govern ourselves. Because I always say, in order to move forward, we need to go back. We need to go back and learn our teachings, learn our stories, learn our languages. Because without that, we have no sense of identity. You know, we who are we as Anishinaabe? My grandpa tells me a story of, you know, our DNA runs through the river. Yes, Western Western world says DNA is blood. DNA is, you know, all these proteins and put together. But for my grandpa, he said our DNA runs in the river. And that's why people always live by the river because that river, that river fed all the plants, the berries, the trees, the, the medicines. It gave water to the, to the, to the, all the animals. And all of those things are things we put into our bodies so that that for me you know just coming from that story it's okay that's where i'm from but it also teaches me water is life water is important water makes up who we are you know same with our creation story the creation story of how human beings were made you know all the animals gathered together around the fire because creator said there's going to be a new being coming to this world so each animal offered something to this new being the bear came up first put his tobacco i said to this new being I'm going to offer him my body and he put his tobacco on the fire. And from that smoke, you could see the shape of a body. Then the moose came. He said to this new being, I'm going to offer him my limbs. So he put his uh, tobacco on the fire and you see arms and legs with the body. Then the beaver said, I'll offer him my teeth, eagle, my vision, and and so forth. All these animals one by one came and offered something. And lastly, it was the flea. The last one that came was the flea. And he said to this new being, I'm going to offer him my brain so he remembers and knows how small he is in this big universe. And then boom, then that's how man was made. And so that that story and the teaching that comes with it is that we have to respect animals. We have to protect them. We have to love them. We have to nourish them, cherish them because we wouldn't be here without them. And we still need them today because that's, you know, they, you know, uh, they're the meat. That's, that's how we fed ourselves and just the way they lived. And so it's all these stories and teachings that we've lost and we've drived away from. But if we just go back and listen to those stories, then we'll understand, okay, well, how am I supposed to live as an Anishinaabe? And then especially the most important for me, I find is language. It's so, so important because it's who, who makes us who we are. It gives us our identity. You know, if we look across Turtle Island, you look at different nations and yes, we have a lot of similarities, also a lot of different uh, differences, but what really makes us who we are is our language. You know, I, I'm Anishinaabe because I speak Anishinaabe and win. And uh, it, same could be said with people in Europe, you know, what differentiates different European countries, what differentiates France from England to Germany, you know, it's, it's the language, same thing with the Asian countries, right? So that, that language is so important. But the difference between all these, you know, European and Asian countries is, uh, and people who come here to, to Canada is like you, if you lose your language, 
you have a motherland to go back to and learn it. Where do we go? We're already home. You know, where do we go to learn our languages? We have nowhere else to go because we're already home. That's so for me, it's like we need that language because it, like, uh, again, with the language comes teaching, just like these certain words, like for me, the, the, I, the teaching I got the word for tongue is oh, actually, sorry. My grandmother always told me I'd, I'd always be nervous to speak at these events or like public speaking at these marches. And my, my cooking would always say, speak from the heart, speak from the spirit, your mouth and your mind will do the rest automatically, just like a mechanism. And then I heard a story from someone else. I forget who it was out West, but they, uh, it was another Anishinaabe uh, person. And they said, uh, the word for tongue is udedli. And in that word, ude is heart. Because if you speak from the heart, you, right? Like in science, Western science, the tongue is used to speak. So you're literally speaking from the heart. And that's the teaching that comes with it. You know, and another one that I really like, uh, example I use is the word for warrior. You know, in English, you hear that word warrior. There's that word war and war. What, what do I think when I hear war? I think violence. I think bloodshed. I, I, not, like not good things. But in Anishinaabe Win, when you say a, a warrior, it's ogijida, which means to have a great heart. Because in order to be a warrior, you need to have a great heart to stand for your people. You need to have a great heart to to uh, speak for your people and you're doing it out of a good heart you're not just doing it for yourself you're doing it out of love you're doing it because yeah out of love that's all love is such an important uh, thing in our in our uh, culture so for me it's 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 really about going back like we need to go back and we need to bring this forward and that's why for me i want to i want to be a gym teacher i I see an opportunity there to, in my classroom, to bring that language back, to bring, to bring the teachings back. You know, I, I, I'll take Casey school, for example, you walk outside the school gym and there's a big open field. There's the bush, there's a bush, there's the, there's the lake right there. And that for me, I don't see just bush. I don't see just nature. I see a classroom. I see a classroom where kids could go out and learn, learn who they are as an Anishinaabe and then boom. And then so forth, all the generations that were hit, by residential schools are now we're starting to start healing all the generations that are still affected because we are still affected today. Even though residential school stopped in 90, 96, we're still feeling effects today. So it's important that we go back. We need to, we need to go back before we move forward. Miigwech. Miigwech. All right, Miigwech, writer. I wholeheartedly agree that we need to go back um, to our traditional ways and values. And that is something that I've been feeling very strongly lately um, with our community, because when I think about how, how long um, language, culture, and traditions have been lost in Pikwakanagan with that, um, our values and uh, such as well. So that's why we've been getting ourselves into these um, terrible agreements with the government. And <laughs> it's gotten to a point where, you know, we're asking the nuclear laboratory to, you know, no to the near surface disposal of their radioactive waste, 
but at the same uh, time, we're also naming their buildings. <laughs> um, so that was one case where I really felt, you know, we just need to go back um, and learn our ways. But who do we go back to? Where do we go? Because our knowledge holders and uh, teachers, they're, you know, over the past couple of decades, they've, uh, you know, passed on to the spirit realm. And we just don't have anything to go back to at this point. And so that is the heartbreaking reality of the Indian Act policies on Pekwakanagan. And essentially it is cultural genocide of what our people are facing. And so that's why all the, these complex issues that we are now facing, um, we're at a loss of how we can even navigate through them. And so that's why, you know, community members now are in, are now initiating grassroots, uh, grassroots led movements, such as these protests and petitions and such, because we just need to take a step back. But there's a push from the Canadian government to finalize these negotiations. And so it's been a, it's been a daunting task and um, it, it's been very difficult because now they are projected to sign this agreement with in the next couple of years. But a lot of us are saying, no, we can't, we don't have enough knowledge and wisdom and all of these te teachings, you know, we're just going against it all. And sadly, the Penn Indian Act chief and councils, they are a system designed to fail and it's just not working. So the idea of having a traditional sort of council is a very great idea. But in that sense, it's how do we get the leaders to even agree to that? You know, we're all so tied into this economical paradigm and people, it's a lot about the money, you know, this is almost a billion dollar agreement. And those in the leadership positions, they're making almost $100,000 a year for, you know, making these decisions on our behalf, on your behalf. And it's it's been frightening. Um, a lot of the community members, they have been feeling um, very scared, depressed um, at this point because we don't know what to do anymore. And with everything going on, you know, we're passing through this billion dollar agreement. And with that, they're also trying to negotiate a self-government process so that we can become self-sustainable and break away from the Indian Act. Well, that sounds idea uh, ideal in that um, but it's not with the way things have actually rolled out. Uh, in my opinion, we're not anywhere near ready for that. Um, if, you know, we're open to accepting a one-time billion-dollar deal and 1.3% of our territory back, and within this agreement, this is it. Like, they don't want to make any more agreements on this territory. They want to sign it and finalize it. And put it in stone. So this, I feel like does set 
precedent for um, future negotiations. Like, you know, like you guys mentioned the West Bank, First Nations and such like that, um, where they felt like they were given too much power. Well, now with this one, we're given very little power. And, but we're being told this is the best thing that we can take. So we might as well just go with it, which has consequences <laughs> and which leads to like the destruction of our nation as a whole. Once this goes through, the a part of the agreement was to relinquish our uh, reserve title and uh, transfer it to a fee simple title. So with this will become a municipality. This is something that community members have always known. And we were told that we are liars and we are misinformed. We don't know, but they don't tell us yet in a letter from Chief Wendy Jocko to the prime minister, um, they were asking them to rescind that part of the agreement of relinquishing our reserve title lands. So we have lost control. We're, we're losing a lot of control as protectors of this territory. We don't have, with once this agreement goes through, we won't have any say on that. It'll be the Algonquins of Ontario. And they, are, like, you guys don't recognize them, neither do we, and we haven't. There is some people in there as members who are true non-status Anishinaabek Algonquins, but they're not as much, like they don't account for as much as like the 8,000. So it was last year it was presented to us that half, literally half of their membership is non-Algonquin at all, or maybe even non-Indigenous. So we're currently trying to uh, navigate through those issues and they've opened up an Algonquin enrollment tribunal process. But why wasn't this done before even the AIP signing? I don't know. That's why this whole process has been completely backwards for us. And <laughs> so with this, I believe that, you know, the leaderships need to listen to the people as a whole. What do we want? And we're trying to send petitions out at this uh, moment to, you know, have, have those, you know, wishes of behalf of the community respected to protect the reserve lands and our territory as a whole, because we don't want to cede it. This is the whole part of the agreement is to extinguish and exterminate us. And that's not what the initial intention of with this, um, you know, process. We did petition for a treaty. Like I mentioned, we weren't a part of the historical number of treaties. So we just wanted, you know, an agreement where we can share this territory. We have to accept that these people are here, but you know, they're taking more and more of our territory and, you know, there's still so much crown land within this territory that they have ownership of, but they're only giving us 1.3% back. And that all of this 
and all goes against any like traditional values Anishinaabek people have, which. I, uh, yeah, I, I really, I really understand and, and, and get like, like get the whole picture of where is it, where is it coming from, where is it talking about, because when we talk about the influence that Indian Act uh, governance systems has had uh, on our communities and on our people, it's, it's uh, in a lot of cases, communities are ran more like businesses than actual communities where, you know, favors given more to the, you know, people who are holding more of the power and balance and stuff. And so one of the things I've, I've, I've noticed is that, uh, you know, we talk about uh, one of the, 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 the teachings of which would be, you know, like mutual aid and reciprocity. And this is something that's very much lacking in our communities. And, uh, you know, I, I, I see it. I see it in KZ. I see it in Taganic. I see it, you know, there's this where there's a struggle. You know, people are, have kind of strayed away from the values and the principles of, of you know, there's a lot of talk about our leadership and I'm not going to get one, but there's really a lot of lacking of maintaining and practicing those principles in life. So, you know, like, it's easy for leadership to go around and talking about that, but when they're not practicing those things and actually, you know, implementing them into their, into their own life, you know, it doesn't actually follow through into the leadership. And so, <clears throat> uh, which leads me to my, 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 next, my next question, which is about education. And so, um, <laughs> You know, education is intrinsically intertwined uh, with the constitutional principles of Inaganagewin. Um, uh, without education in the modern world, we may lose and lack the capacity to successfully govern ourselves as communities and as a nation. And although edu education through the eyes uh, or lens of settler societies perceived through institutional, institutional conditioning, diplomas and degrees, Within Anishinaabe society, education also implies the knowledge of the environment, waters, history, language, and ceremonies. So, well, my question is, is, do you feel that you or youth from your community are recognized by your community for the work of carrying on and practicing traditional forms of education? There's a really strong push to get that out there and and to get our those all those little minds of our all those little children that are gonna that are rising up and to get them connected and and to maintain that and so they can carry that and have that tool in their toolkit of being like who they are and it's tough but the world is opening up more to um realizing that they can't like keep our culture from us anymore like through how i think like the banning of the potlatch and that that was detrimental to the west coast um their economic world and how they functioned and and how they 
made us have to have passes to be able to leave the reserve back in the day within our own Mushman Cookham's lifespan. Like that wasn't that long ago. And it's, it's wild how much damage was caused in, in two generations. And then now we're all like trying to heal from that and, and suffering the traumas of being intergenerationally attached to those root the root pain and the root crimes that were committed against our people. Um, so um, we have to revitalize it and, and, and keep moving it forward and, and push for the continuity of that and not have it just be like a phase where, okay, this is cool. Let's, let's do this. We need like full support to heal and it's also within the individual but to have our to grow strong allyships and and to share our culture because people will come to Quebec and as an example and they're like okay well it's French-speaking um province and but prior to colonization it wasn't even 500 years ago and Moen was everywhere within our Nitakanan and that wasn't that long ago, and there's so much work to do to revitalize and to keep it strong and to keep it going for our future generations. Um, did I? Can you repeat the question again, Emilio? Please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, do you feel that you or youth from your community are recognized by your community for the work of carrying on and practicing traditional forms of education? Like, you know, just like, like we're seeing a, like a lot, like a very big resurgence of uh, a moose hide, uh, hide tanning and hide, hide, hide practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the act of doing that, like it, it represents the, the work that is governed within I'm not going to even to create policies, right? You know, when you're processing and working that. And so, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, revitalization within our communities especially for young folks i mean like it's it there's more mobilization now even for like people that are like really kind of just coming into their youth young ones like they're really kind of like just taking things full force right and so it's it's pretty amazing to see these things that are happening and you know leona had mentioned that uh is is struggling with culture and whatnot right and one of the first aspects, one of the first main and major aspects of the Nakanagewan is, you know, the operation of ceremony before everything, especially before you're going into things and stuff. And so whether I, I think that with the loss of ceremony and the loss of cultural teachings to guide our people, it's really impacted the way, um, of course, the way we govern ourselves, but the way we appreciate those that are pra- uh, practicing and continuing that knowledge. Um, you know, I, I mentioned a while ago how, um, how like we, when we're walking in, in both worlds, right, and we're trying to save what we can of our culture. And sometimes, in my own experience, sometimes it's a little frustrating to see, or to, to, to be an individual that's really working a lot to, to learn and preserve it and also pass on knowledge, right? Because of course, like, 
I don't want to say that we're burdened with the duty, but it's it's bestowed onto us to to maintain and pass it on. But when we're not getting, you know, the help or um, not necessarily recognition, but when we end up doing a lot of the work alone, we we become burned out, right? And so it's it's a lot of work to preserve the culture, and I think that. I think it's important that we start recognizing and rewarding uh, those that are maintaining that form of education because it is education, right? Like it's. It's screaming outside. <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 along the lines of like the 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 idea that uh, I'm going for in this one. Oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> Downtown Montreal, you know. <laughs> But the hunger is there. The hunger is there, and, and have to feed it the right foods per se. Uh, to what are the foundations of our culture as Anishinaabe people? And it, I, I feel like it'll only get stronger as more and more learn and 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 carry that forward. And um, there's nothing quite like tanning a hide, <laughs> especially a moose hide. Um, it's one way to stay out of trouble and to get really soft hands and really strong biceps. <laughs> well, that's what it is, too. It's, it, you know, uh, culture and tr like cultural education is also a form of intervention and prevention. Mm -hmm. I believe this is very true. And given the circumstances in our communities and many other communities across Turtle Island, um, there's a lot of this need in prevention and intervention. And I believe that culture is very, very much a way to help guide our youth and the next generation out of this darkness. Feed our spirits. Yeah. You know, we're giving them that fire to light their way, right? You know, we're, we're always trying to keep that, uh, paying it forward. I don't know if anyone else wants to take the floor. Yeah, we got Savannah. Um, there, there, like Savannah said, there is definitely a big push, and there's a hunger for it, and like you see it within the community. You know, like you said, the moose hyzers, they're they're coming up a lot more. Even uh, gathering sap in the spring, you're seeing a lot more families doing that. So you are seeing a resurgence, but there's definitely more that we can be doing. You know, our elders are definitely there. They're very present, and uh, you know, they're there to offer what we have. It just, I, I wish more more of us youth were there to, you know, were able to be there to listen and learn. But uh, like again, we have to have that one foot in the Western and then one foot in the traditional. And both forms are, of education are are important for sure, equally important, but so so different. It's like like like. Um, Western Western learning, you know, you, you sit in the classroom, you listen to someone talk, you read and you write, you go home, you, you, you memorize it. It's all memory, all mine. And you, you, your intelligence is, is, uh, it's, it's based off of, of, of a grade, right? That's how you're determined. You know, that's how, okay, you, you're strong because you have high grades. Well, maybe they're not strong in the book smarts, as you would say, but you know, they have other gifts, they have other talents that are useful and that the, that the world needs. So it's like the education system that we have now, it really, especially for us Anishinaabe people, it really limits us. It really holds us back. You know, I, I feel like 
all post-secondary students are running a hundred meter race, but everyone else that's not indigenous is starting at the 70 meter line because we, we, we're starting at the start line back here, but everyone else has their head start. Everyone else, you know, has everything to them. But us, we're, we're moving away from home. We're moving away from our families and already there, you know, how strongly us and Ishnabe are tied to the land and our families, our community. So we have to remove ourselves, put ourselves in a, in a different environment. And then while we're in that environment, we can't learn so much about our knowledge because we have to learn about white man's knowledge. And it's just, it's it's a mix. It's, it's really tough to do. And that, that's why, that's why I say us youth can't be there is because we're stuck in this Western world. And, uh, but it, but it's, it's important to have, you know, my, my grandpa, my, my great, great grandpa, William Kamanda always said, and always told my grandmother. And now my grandmother tells me, he says, education was used as a tool to destroy our people, but we're, we're going to use it as a tool to get our people out of poverty. So it, we need to get, and that's what he says. And we need to give the light, white man back his language, give him back his language. You know, again, going back to that aspect of language, you know, for me, I don't really like the word indigenous because that's not who I am. You know, my cookums taught me that all the, if you go back to documents all the way back to England, France, and even the Vatican were known as Indians or North American Indians. We're not known as indigenous. We're not known as Aboriginal. So we need to keep calling ourselves. We're Indians. We're North American Indians because that's what the legal documents say. If we start calling ourselves indigenous people, then all of them will be like, oh, well, we, we, we serve North American Indians. We serve Indians. No, we don't serve indigenous people, you know, and it's, it's also with the language, it's like sugarcoating stuff, you know, like when we talk about residential schools, schools no they're not schools schools is where you go to learn these are concentration camps the bodies aren't being uh, discovered they're being recovered our elders and our survivors have been saying for decades search those schools search those schools you know so it's, it's just about giving back the language and that's the sacrifice we have to make but on on, on the traditional side of knowledge not only are you learning about the world but it's also you know teaching you how to live your life, you know, how, how to survive, I guess, you know, growing up, you know, my, one of my responsibilities as the young man in the house was make a fire in the winter, keep the house warm. So, you know, that's what I did growing up, pile wood, you do all that. And in high school, I remember going over to my, uh, my friends were like, Oh, let's have a fire. So we go back to, we go to my friend's house uh, who were who French because uh, like Savannah, my, my parents sent me to a French school as well, because they said, you know, you live in Quebec, you're going to need French. So, go to my friend's house and are like, okay, like who's making the fire? And then they all just stood there like, like they didn't know what to do at all. And I, I, I thought making a fire was like, everyone knew how to do that. And I, so I was like, well, I guess I got to do it. So I you know, start gathering my supplies and, you know, they bring out the gasoline and I'm like, where's the weed loss? Where's the birch bark? You know, <laughs> but it was like, for me, like I, like for me, that was just regular. That was just a unknown thing. But for, I didn't, and it's only then where I realized like, okay, well making a fire, it's like, it's a skill. It's a survival skill, but that's just, you know, how we learned growing up. And, and like you said, Emilio, uh, when the babies are in their Takanagans, they're always around. They're just watching. That's how we learned. We learned by, we're oral people, right? We learned by listening. We learned by watching. And that's why in these schools, it's like everything's written, you read, and we're, that's why we're at such a disadvantage. 
but like, uh, it's funny because my mom always, my mom, she's a very strong worker. She's a hard worker. And, uh, uh, whenever we have these culture camps, she puts everyone to work, you know, regard like, uh, if you're a teenager, if you're a kid, if you're an adult, the cookums and chomes get the rest, but like, regardless your age, you're always, she's keeping them busy because they're learning and, and, you know, some, and especially with the younger children, you know, she might, she puts them to work and then, you know, other people might see it as child labor, but my, my mom likes the college knowledge instilling because that's what it is at the end of the day, you know, they're just, they're learning. Yes, they're working, but they're learning. And eventually down the line, it's going to help them. You know, for me, myself, I moved away from my family, but because of the way my mom raised me, it's, I could take care of myself. You know, I, I, I know how to live on my own. You know, I know how to cook. I know how to wash my clothes, clean, take care of myself. And all of that was just done by watching what our people do. And that's, so it's very hard for us in that system, edu white educational system to thrive and be at the same level as everyone because we learn differently than everyone else, but we still manage, right? We Anishinaabe people put ourselves in that white man's world. We'll manage, we'll survive. We'll, it, it might be tough, but we'll manage, we'll get through it. Put a white man in the bush, good luck. Good luck, you know? So both, both forms of education are equally important you know, but for us, it's, it's about finding that balance and that's, what's tough. And even, even at that, my grandpa always says, don't, yes, education is super important. You know, all, all my grandparents actually, you know, even though education was used to destroy them, to abuse them and put them through like all these horrors, they still push for education, no matter what, you know, regardless, they still say, get educated. It's important. Our people get educated because our people need to be on the same level as the rest of Canada. But my grandpa also said, don't forget about lived experience. Yes. It's good to have your degree. It's good to know all of these things, but don't forget about lived experience because that is, is equally as important as education. You'll learn so much just by, talking and listening to someone and see what they've been through. So, yeah, so um, kind of went off the question a little bit, but yeah, for me, that's like education. It's two different types, but very, very strong, equally strong. Miigwech. Miigwech. Okay. So yeah, for me, education is an important thing um, for passing on the knowledge um, to like others, especially in my community who, you know, we've lost so much. Um, I have a friend who, Amber Hine, and maybe my, some of you guys might know of her. Uh, so she has been putting the work into revitalize the traditions of um, moose tanning, like moose hide tanning. And so um, that has been a wonderful like aspect to see uh, happen within my community. And oh, many do appreciate that. Uh, so, you know, on the topic of going back to the land, you know, um, that's where our education does come from. And for me personally, you know, I 
when I felt like when I was in the bush, I just felt that the land was calling me home and I need to learn the ways of the bush. <laughs> so I've also kind of been, you know, on that journey myself too, because in a sense, I do feel like there's going to be a time in my life where that is going to be essential for my survival or such. Um, we, my family, we do hunt, but you know, we don't know what to do with the moose hides. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And so that's why I'm very appreciative of my friend Amber for showing me those skills. And so now I won't ever, well, I won't let my family's moose hides go to waste. And if I did have space in my freezer, I would do them all. <laughs> but it, it, it's a lot. Um, it takes a community, that's for sure. And um, so, yeah, like, here in Pickwakanagan, um, the only closest schools that we have are off reserve in a Catholic school, in a public school, and those are our only two options. And so, like, I say that, you know, even living in my community has colonized me, uh, and that's a sad truth. And so I didn't grow up with a lot of these teachings Um you know, I did have my teachers in the schools and stuff, but one to teach me true Anishinaabe traditions and language, um, we did have a little bit of that, but, you know, I wasn't completely immersed into that. And so for me, I feel like there's a duty that I have to fulfill to learn um, the language, to learn the ways of the bush and I, my dream was to, you know, have a camp or something, you know, where we immerse ourselves in just that and, you know, um, reclaim those ways of being Anishinaabe um, and such. So there's a lot that, a lot of work that needs to be done here in Pickwalkanagan and it's, you know, it's taking its time, but at the same time too, um, with the, a lot of political stuff going on, it's putting our community on a hold in such in a such way that we aren't able to explore our identities more and our culture and such. And the only thing that we get is her power <laughs> once a year. And I mean, during COVID, we didn't have that. And, you know, to me, a powwow is more of a social than like a ceremony or anything like that. Um, so that's that to me just it's it wasn't until I was an adult um actually that this is how uh like bad that you know we've lost so much because in my opinion I thought that well I was very isolated and I didn't know um too much about what was going on outside of my community so um for for me, I feel like the reserve has just assimilated a whole bunch. Um, yeah, um, I hope that answers your question well. <laughs> uh, Miigwech. You know, uh, I'm I'm kind of noticing. Uh, I think that there really there really needs to be um, some. Of course, communication, but I think there really needs to be community to community uh, relationship building because uh, I know that each community um, do, does have their strengths culturally and, and you know even spiritually as well. And I think that uh, 
within the idea of reciprocity, I think that uh, we could help each other out as communities if we were to reconnect and work together more and kind of like rebuild these burnt bridges. And it kind of leads me uh, into uh, this, uh, my next, my next topics here is, uh, let's see, how, how do I, so given the circumstances of colonization, the Indian Act and provincial boundaries that have been imposed on our people, it's had a visible impact on our communities and nation's governing system, which has in turn had an effect in the current state of relations within our nation. Today, nations are pushing towards sovereignty and successfully moving away from the Indian Act, implementing their own constitutional rights to self-governance. And so, excuse me, I guess like it kind of comes back to that theme of like, you know, self-determination and then your experience, Savannah, too, within seeing this whole movement. And as you mentioned, how it may actually be even tougher because of the situation in BC. And so I want to ask you is like, um, because of our particular situation as Algonquin Anishinaabeg, uh, you know, we always talk about the idea of our territory being unseated and, you know, uh, sometimes we wonder what does that really mean, you know, and so I'd like to ask you is what do you think about the idea of moving away from the Indian Act and moving towards sovereignty and self-governance and like how could you see or envision that happening? Well, that's that's a really good question. Um, one aspect which causes a major issue um, within our traditional territory is the fact that not all of our communities um, in Quebec have an actual land base. So they're just settlements. So they don't even have any banned, banned lands or, and then now they're in negotiations to try and better their situations and actually get what they, they deserve. Um, Cause pre-Confederation um, the federal government wanted to put the whole nation in two reserves, one being Temiskaming First Nations and then Kitagon Zipi. And not everybody was okay with that because that's not who we are, right? Um, we were nomadic and our territory is so vast. Um, so that causes a major complexity to, to that because of the land base issue, which, and that takes so much time also to resolve. Um, nothing's simple and nothing's easy. And with every election that happens at the federal or municipal or um, provincial levels, um, things change and then things get stagnant. And people switch over, and the same goes within our band councils. Um, they're they're given monies to provide services and and programs for the communities, but it's it's only a little amount based on population, and so that causes a lot of disparities because it's not a one equate or one one equation for each community. It's, so that conversation. I'm sure is happening at a lot of dinner tables within family units and and at the tribal council level, we're getting there, but with all like at the nation level with all eleven communities, that's really tough. And I, I know that 
our leadership sees the past and like walks forward into the future. But I think it's a, a trick that the federal government and the Indian Act did to like help like divide the people within, but we're also reclaiming it and trying to work together at whatever level we can on and and find the commonalities of, and focus on those points to bring that forward and and to work together in um in, with consensus and and all in full agreement that interest and that need is recognized and it is there but it's a really big big issue and to have the whole Algonquin Nation united would, would be everything. Um, we'd be stronger and, and we're working there and it'll take time, but we always have to have hope and have faith and bring that forward with us. And I wish we could just like blink our eyes and everything we want could be there automatically for us. So then we can forget about all the troubles and and all the political fights that we have and and could just like actually time warp back to when we were actually living on the land and and we're practicing our actual nationhood in the in the way that is ours and i i, I just withheld from saying traditional because it's deeper than that. And I don't know, just like trying to carry that forward and to remember and then, and then to see how things need to change and things ebb and flow. And I'm, I'm just proud to be an Algonquin Anishinaabe woman and, and just trying to encapsulate it all and, and just be conscious and aware of everything and moving forward in this walking life like it's it's a trip <laughs> Anyways, I'll, I, I'll just end it up there <laughs> good good Solano um it's an Indian act that one's very very tricky it's like something that we talk about at the nerd table too as a family like uh Savannah mentioned or was it Emilio one of you you mentioned that but um it's so tricky because Yes, it's not good. And a lot of people, a lot of non-Indigenous people ask that as well. Like, oh, well, why don't you just abolish it, get rid of it? Like, you know, but it's not, it's not simple like that. It's like, as bad as the Indian Act is and as bad as it restricts us, it holds up with the Constitution of Canada, you know. Indian Act can't override Constitution. Constitution can't override the Indian Act. And yes, the Indian Act restricts us a lot. It holds us down so much. But at the same time, it gives us what little rights we have, you know, all these little, little tiny rights that we have that it, it Indian Act holds that and it, it, it makes that strong for us. And that's where our case comes from. So it's, it's not as easy as just be like, okay, well, we get rid of it because if we get rid of it, then like, what do we have after that? Like we got nothing to protect us or like, you know, so it's, and then I was going to say it's, it's kind of, yeah. So it's kind of like, for me, the way I see it, it's like you take that away from the Indian Act, and yes, it sucks having a status card. It's stuck. It sucks being recognized as a number by the government, 
but that number gives us rights. And it, like, if we don't, without that card, like if we get rid of the Indian then we're just Canadians like everyone else. You know, we're not, we're not Indians after that. We're just Canadians. And then, oh, well, you're Canadian. You get every, you get the same rights. You get the same privileges as every other Canadian. But that's not the way it should work. And it, it just, it reminds me of what Trudeau did try to, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau tried to do it in 69 with the white paper. You know, it's the same thing, right? He, he, he had good intentions. So I've heard to abolish the Indian Act and put in place this new so-called white paper. But same situation back then. I've heard stories of elders being like, no, like if you take this away from us, then we're just, we're Canadians as everyone else. We're not, we, we lose our identity that, you know, the government has given us the rights that we have this little, little tiny stuff that we have. So it's very complicated. It's gonna. It's definitely gonna be a long process to derive away from that. But it definitely, whatever the next step is, or whatever policy is put in place next, definitely 100% has to be made by Anishinaabe people, like the North American people. Like we can't have these expert, these so-called experts, these politicians, government officials doing this stuff for, for us because they don't know what we need. They don't know what we've been through. You know they. They haven't lived the life we have, so it wouldn't make sense, you know, to, for you know, it just it just wouldn't make sense. And um, for me, like the first step to that is to all be on a level of understanding, right? Like all of us, like uh, whether you be black, white, Asian, Shnabe, we all have to be on that same level of understanding. And and I, I take that to like even like a smaller scale, like not having people do stuff for us. It's like uh, taking college courses for me. I took a indigenous how was it called indigenous it was an indigenous studies course it was uh but taught by a white man like no no disrespect to him he was such a great teacher he was a very kind man and he was really understanding what what everything i was going through no disrespect to him at all you know i am really glad i had him as a teacher i had him twice actually or maybe three times and um but at the end of the day it's a white man teaching our history our knowledge right and it, it just doesn't make sense and, that, and I feel like that's how it always is. It's all, we always have people speaking for us, doing things for us. It's almost like they, they see us as lesser and we can't do it ourselves. You know, we're weak, we're not smart. So oh, we need people to do it for them because they don't know what's good for them. That's not true at all, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, it's tough. It's very tricky. And I know there's a lot of, a lot of allies out there who want to help out and try to help out and, you know, it, but it's just almost like they're sometimes they overstep boundaries. They don't know their boundaries. It's like, don't, don't stand for uh, in front of us and speak for us. Don't stand behind us. That's what we need. You know, we were, we need you to support us because it sucks. But at the end of the day, it's white people's voices that are going to change white government officials' minds. You know, they're never going to listen to us. Indians. never, ever, ever. It's so it's going to be, white people telling their white leaders you know smarten up wake up do something you know we need to change this and uh so, but yeah but that but that level of understanding comes with uh, that uh, yeah sorry that level of understanding comes from being on all on the same level because if we're all on the same level then we all respect each other we all have compassion for each other and we all love each other and then we move forward together as one we walk together one, one step at a time so yeah, so for me, the Indian Act, it's 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 possible, 
but it's it can't be done as quickly as people think it can't be just done like that and it's going to be a long process it's going to be a long hard fight but we're resilient people right we've been fighting since 1492 you know it's a couple of more hundred years you know like we all we do it we do it for the next generation we always seven generations ahead we always make sure set next seven generations are uh, are gonna have what they have and hopefully more in the future they'll have more and you know they won't have to live through the struggles we've been through and the struggles our ancestors fought through so uh that's what i gotta say about that miigwech miigwech hello all right so on the topic of the indian act you know to me i do see the issues with it and how it's caused so much destruction to our nations and it has genocidal policies intertwined with it but at the same time i do see the point of maintaining that at least for now before we enter into a self-government agreement and so that is the only option that canada is giving us to break away from the indian act but this whole process has been built from you know white negotiation lawyers with the aoo so the self-government process and the land claims negotiations those two concepts are intertwined with each other and they all, they both go hand in hand and at this point i don't feel like we are anywhere close to um achieving a true self-government agreement um that is going to be beneficial to our community and so that's the part that my community is trying to resist because with a one-time deal of almost a billion dollars 1.3% of territory back it's not enough to build a nation from they are taking away our land culture language resources everything that makes us anishinaabe peoples and so that is the struggle of the agogwits and pipwakanagan and you know in ontario at this point um because we do have relations agogwits relations throughout this territory not just in pipwakanagan and i'm not talking about the other nine groups involved i'm talking about that some didn't move to reserve lands and so they were just kind of settled on white territory um and like you know we do we are very closely uh tied with the nipissings as well um you know culturally and linguistically <clears throat> so i do uh you know see a point that we need to unite ourselves as a strong nation but we can't just you know only group together the gonquins of ontario i'm not talking about the ao i'm just talking about as a whole but exclude our kin you know in the other communities in quebec and so at this point i really do feel the need that there has to be more connections and uh that more connections made amongst ourselves and that's why i am so thankful to even be here today and invited by emilio to speak on this because we just need to be heard 
really. Um, th this process has been very isolating and, you know, we've been told that we're uninformed, misinformed and that, you know, we don't know what we're talking about, but we have read the agreement and it is, this was, the entire document was written by the white negotiation lawyers within the AOO Corporation, and they do not know what us Anishinaabek people need, and they don't know what what kind of things that we need to, you know, build the strong nation from. They're only doing it from a white man's perspective, and so that is only to just appease the government's um, requests. Like all of this process of extinguishment is, you know, to me, it, it's just the white people giving back to themselves. <laughs> they want to take away our land and resources and people and culture and such, because they knew that if they hit us where it hurts, you know, there will be nothing us, but nothing left of us left. So yeah um so at this at this very point i do feel the need that there needs to just be to just walk away from the negotiations to you know group together with the community and not just make this uh you know indian act ban council's like uh, decision this needs to be a collective decision not just from our community but also members of other communities your, your voices matter as well and um like I said, there's more kinship and relations ties with, you know, like say Kittigan Z, for example, I know people who have relations from both sides and, you know, that, that really, you know, matters, you know, to exclude that as the first point of the agreement, it's, it's terrible. It's genocidal. And that is the sad truth for the Algonquins. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, especially given the, the circumstances with the white paper, um, really, it's uh, with that first move, it's it's a way of trying to pull the carpet from under us, right? And, you know, trying to do it, all nations, even during that time in, in the 60s, right, we're all at different, different levels of their, you know, where they're at. And for the settler colonial government to propose and then impose this proposition leaves us without time to actually establish and kind of get ourselves like build our foundation to be able to counter uh, that type of decision. And I think uh, in terms of the relationships between our communities, uh, Algonquin and Anishinaabe communities, both in Ontario and Quebec, even with this whole Ontario agreement, I mean, there's communities that are on the Ontario side that, I mean, we look at Wagashig. Wagashig is recognized amongst the council, um, of, you know, the Anishinaabe council, but they are a community from Ontario. And along, you know, the the the, the borders of the Kichisibi, you know, like, like there's old communities that are more recognized today as Ojibwe, but they're Anishinaabe. But back in the day, they were just as much as or our relatives just as much as the Nipissing because like you know even in my family my great-grandmother was a commander and so like commanders were related all the way up from Kittigan Zibi as far as like Sudbury and 
you know, with the imposition of like, of course, the Indian Act and all these other things that came about um, to divide us with these names, right? To pinpoint us with these names and all these things. And I think that coming back to um, unity and reestablishing our foundations together uh, with an Anishinaabe constitution and actually working together to, to build things and kind of like put our, our knowledge together, both cultural knowledge, spiritual knowledge, uh, educational knowledge, uh, you know, all these things, all these things matter. And, and these are all the, the factors that help not just govern our, our, our society, but cre help create a healthy and uh, functional society. And, you know, I had this one question, but it, it's, it's a bit, uh, of course, it's a bit complicated, you know, with the situation of the Algonquin uh, Anishinaabeg Nation, um, the fact that there are, uh, I say three councils, but there's two councils, but one that's, you know, really problematic right now and it's causing a lot of issues. And I'm not sure how much awareness is happening within communities because of course our communities are struggling internally already with a lot of social issues, you know, just hearing your, you know, you share um, your personal experiences in the beginning is that the reality for us, for many of us Algonquin and Anishinaabeg is that we're coming from our lived experiences as who we are. We're not archival Indians, <laughs> you know what I mean? We're not like, we're not based off this one ancestor from, you know, the 1716 or 1500s. Like we're, we are, those descended from those who have experienced all of these harsh uh, impacts that the Indian Act and not just the Indian Act, but even going way back, like we are descended from those, those continuous lines up into present day. And so um, I actually wanted to move uh, towards this other question that involves more of the environment, because, you know, like we're always talking about like how much the land is important to us. And the land is where our, 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 our constitutionalism is rooted in. And all of our teachings, our education, and our survival was based on the observation and understanding of our territory and how we've adapted and how we've managed to survive for thousands of years, you know, through the ice age and into modernity and all these and then, you know, and then, and then colonization. And then we're still here, <laughs> you know, and we've, we've always managed to adapt. And so this next question is, the environment is one of the greatest concerns for many Anishinaabeg, and in many cases are often directly impacted by decisions made by both indigenous leaders and settler politicians. The impacts uh, resource extraction has had on the land and water has trickled uh, into the health of wildlife, vegetation, and people that live out on the territory and harvest what the land provides. Sustainability, sustainable development, and green alternatives have proven to be more and more possible today. Given the current state of the world, do you think that Algonquin Anishinaabe leadership should take the path of sustainable practices guided by cultural values and principles of Anakinagewin to ensure prosperity for seven generations from now? It's a big one. <laughs> um, and the, uh, there are communities that are totally anti, um, um, like ex 
ex the expropriation of the minerals and, and forestry and and mining. Um, but Quebec is a beast and it's extractive economy. Like it doesn't work for us. And they just see dollar signs and projected annual returns on whatever resources, resource development they pursue. And that's just numbers to them. And it's very frustrating. But then also there's communities that are like so remote where it's hard and their population isn't that big. So then it's hard for them to get those funds to come in and provide the services and programs for the communities. And, and it's that double-edged sword that you were talking about when we first engaged in this conversation. It's, I feel like it's really up to those that are coming up and, and those that know that there are other ways to go about having an economy within our territory and having it be green. And, and it's just, I wonder how, how long some of those agreements are with some mining companies and what the remediation factors within those private agreements that are made with the individual communities look like. It's a lot of questions. And we know that like, we only have one earth and we only have one territory and we are the stewards of this land. And what do we want to leave for our future generations if we like, don't have these conversations right like now? And they've been happening for many, many, many years. It's a really tough one. And I have no jurisdiction there. <laughs> um, but it's an obligation that we have to carry forward for our future generations. And we have to have those conversations with leaderships and 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 build new partnerships that are sustainable and mm-hmm. and good because that's what we that's what we need and we just need to engage in those conversations to help do our part mm-hmm. maybe like liaise <laughs> a little bit Thank you. Miigwech. Savannah. It's definitely important to bring that culture back to help with the environment, for sure. It's, it's needed. It's a must. It's, we can't continue living the way we are now because there's going to be nothing left. You know, we, we call this planet Jojo Akia, Mother Earth, for a reason. Because like a mother, when we were a baby, she gave, she provided us, provided us with everything we needed to grow and and live, and survive. You know, you know, without without our mothers as baby, where how we would have died, we wouldn't have been here. Like we wouldn't have been able to have the proper needs to keep living a healthy life. And it's the same thing with our Jojo Aki, Mother Earth. She gives us everything we need so we can live, so we can breathe, so we can nourish ourselves. You know, in creation, and in, in the creation story, how it goes, right? It started off with water. From water came land. From that land came the plant life. From that plant life came the animal life. And then from the animal life came human beings. So we're the last ones to come out of that story. But if you flip that order around, it shows that how much we 
need every other aspect that came before us. You know, you take away human beings, animals, plants, uh, water, or earth survive. You know, they they live. But you take away water, take away land, everything else falls. So it just goes to show how dependent we are on the land as human, not, not just Anishinaabe people, I'm talking about all human beings, you know, it goes to show how dependent we are. And we need to find a way to be economic self-sufficient. We can't, we've, we've been relying too long on our land. We've been exploiting our land for too long far too long and we shouldn't have even done that in the first place never never should have been exploiting our mother like that you know would you mistreat your mother like that your own mother you know you ask yourself this would you mistreat your mother would you hurt your mother would you exploit her just for a piece of paper you know when there's no air to breathe when there's no water to drink no food to eat what's that money gonna use what are you gonna use that money for you know how good is that money gonna be so it, we need to find a way to be economic self-sufficient and we have the means, we have the resources and we have the smarts and the Shinabe people are so intelligent. There's so many ways we can make our money, but the easiest cop-out is land. It's just because it's there and that's not who we are as Anishinaabe people. That, that was never our way. That was never, that was never our responsibility. Our responsibility was to take care of the land. You know, make sure, again, coming back to the seven generations, you, you only take what you need and you take care of the land because the seven next seven generations are going to need it. So it it's a dire need. And like Savannah says, we need to do this now. It needs to happen today. You know, it's been, it's for too long. It has been, okay, you know, one day it'll happen. We'll work on it one day. It's going to, but the time is now. We, we can't keep progressing the way we are now because, mother just can't handle it you know she's she's been through so much for i don't know how many years but it's time you know we start healing and we start you know giving back to her you know taking care of her properly like we like we used to and how we should have been so yes we definitely need to bring that culture back into our ways and to be economic self-sufficient which Okay, so for me, I do feel that the land is very important in protecting and preserving, um, but here as well, um, our land is sick because the settler colonial government has established themselves on our most fertile, uh, fertile parts of our territory and they've extracted the resources um, from the territory and they've never given back to us. And so, you know, for the last, um, you know, ever since Wakanagan has been established, you know, we've been brought to this area where the land is no good. Um, and because of that, our people have gotten sick. And so the control um, and the dynamic between Anishinaabeg and the government has it, been very um it's been very like um harmful to us and the environment and you know what we're seeing here like 
we don't have much say of what happens within our territory and only now we've fought to you know have a have a say at the table for you know consent you know we don't want radioactive particles to be stored away in the land that at one point it's going to just seep into the waters and then all the wildlife and plant life that's going to be poisoned you can't go back from that you can't reverse that it's once the damage has been done it's you know it's permanent at that point and so yes we need to take action now to stop that kind of harm from being done to you know our mother earth and you know that's a dream for myself my son and the future generations you know ahead i want you know to us to not have to depend on so much of like this materialistic um needs that the government has imposed on us you know like i think so much about how every little piece of plastic you know and garbage that i have to you know dispose of and recycle you know it's it's a lot even um, like for me you know i wish i could only just take what i need but at the same time all that's been taken in control from the government and we can't access our own territory and use it the way as we were intended without us being called squatters or something you know get off of our crown land or whatever you know what i mean we don't have that no more and so that's why a lot of these issues intertwined with the self-government um and land claim negotiations process um it it's a process that is designed to you know extinguish us and our our land is hurt because of it you know we we're signing off the control that we have, you know, as the guardians and protectors of this territory. And it, it's sad that this is happening all throughout Turtle Island, essentially. Um, so at this point, it's it really is sad, you know. I wish I could just go to the bush and, you know, hunt and drink the water, but I, I just can't know where it's that polluted, you know. And I even see that the wildlife now is getting sick. You know, sometimes we'll go hunting and we'll get a moose only to just find out it's infested with like some sort of parasite that, you know, is one thing that, you know, it's just, it's sad. It's a sad reality for us. And I hope one day that, you know, with the healing that we do as individuals that will reflect on mother earth and, you know, we all can heal together. Yeah. So we are out of time for today, but I do have one more statement that I would like to kind of just send you off with to ponder and maybe even think about and discuss it at the dinner tables with your families and friends too. And so, you know, as Anishinaabe, we grew up learning and hearing about the fire, the eight fire prophecies, right? All the, the prophecies and all the, the teachings that have come with it and the different uh, steps and aspects that happen throughout this timeline. And 
lot of the times I, I, I think that, you know, we're at this crossroads. And so at the crossroads of the seventh and eighth fire, we as Anishinaabeg must actively be aware of the choices that we make in this present time and how that can affect the destiny of us Anishinaabeg in the next seven generations. Much has been lost yet, uh, much, much has been lost yet much remains and continues to be revived. Moving forward, we must acknowledge the wisdom passed on to us from seven generations back, practice it and apply the knowledge in our lives within the modern context and pay it forward to the next seven generations. And so I just want to leave this kind of like idea with you as we, as we sign off is that in the vision of the future, um, like would you, would you and could you see the implementation of an Algonquin Anishinaabe constitutional ratification solid, solidified and written through treatise and symbolized in new modern wampum belts for each community recognized in a, in a, and involved? And so although we can't go into this now, you know, we always talk about the importance of our culture and modernity. And, you know, we learn a lot about the historical wampum belts and, you know, a lot of them are museums or being, being put away and kept safe. But within this modern context, I think moving forward and bringing two people together in unity, it would be really important to bring that aspect because it symbolizes such an important thing within our cultures. So I just wanted to kind of sign off and leave you with that idea and let it linger and, you know, share that idea with your friends and family. And I want to say miigwech, miigwech for coming today. And I really appreciate this conversation. And I really appreciate um, all of you as being here and taking the time to be with us. So miigwech. Uh, Leona and Savannah for your words and your uh, sharing your experiences and Miigwech um, for putting this together. It was uh, it was an honor to be here with you all. Miigwech writer, you have a lot of knowledge in Savannah too. And Miigwech Emilio for inviting me on here to come and speak. I wish we were all together in person. Miigwech <laughs> and... and uh, well, let's be friends. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, guest speakers, Emilio and organizers for this great conversation. Um, thank you, audience members, uh, for joining us online. Um, and yeah, just a reminder that this conversation will be available as a recording on our YouTube at CU4Space uh, later today. Um, with that, we're going to close up the meeting. Uh, thanks, everyone, and have a great afternoon. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info4 concordia.ca or find us on social media at cu4thspace. We'd love to hear from you. The 4th Space podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced with Anna Vaklebeck. Editing by Chanel Lees Marshall and Maximus Delmar. And our theme music, courtesy of Supercontinent. Thanks for listening.